Well, good morning. Come on, guys. You can do better than that. Good morning. Well, now and then, I have these terrifying nightmares. And here's what happens. It's 5 a.m., my alarm go goes off, I wake up, I'm in my childhood home back in India, and I just say a quick prayer, I scramble to get my notes because it's D-Day for me. The most important exam of my life is happening, I'm in my sophomore year of high school, and I gotta go over my notes so that I'm good to go for this exam. And these exams are a big deal. This is how it works. They're held at the end of the school year over a span of 10 days, and you have 10 exams in 10 days. Think about it, three-hour exams, much like your ACTs and SATs. And you have different subjects, they include English, Tamil, which is my native tongue, history, math, science. It's a nightmare. And guess what? Three hours, there's no designated breaks. So there's, no, there's not even a bathroom break. So if you got to go to the bathroom, you're going to lose out on time that you need to finish your exam. That's how it is. And here's why these exams are so significant. This is a standardized, these are a bunch of standardized tests administered by the state. And your scores determine your future. The results of these exams determine what you want to be in life. So if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be an engineer, you got to get a certain score. If you want to go into computer science, you got to get a certain score. If you want to do accountancy, you got to get a certain score. So guess what? If you have a bad day, that's it. You're done. You wanted to be a doctor, but now you got to settle for something that you don't want to, but you're stuck with all your life. I'm not kidding, guys. This is how it works. And guess how these scores are announced? This is the worst part. When the exam gets over, the government announces, well, in a month's time, your results are going to be announced. On the day the results are announced, you go to your school, there's this huge black notice board where all your scores are right there, where ev names everything. You know what? Everyone would know what I scored in any of those subjects. So either you're going to be very proud of your score or you're going to be really embarrassed that you don't even want to go and see your score. So in my dream, I wake up, go over my notes. I'm ready. I'm confident. Today is my math exam. I'm going to crush it. You know, I get ready, wear on my school uniforms. That's a thing still in India. My mom, she's, she's so concerned for me, so she prays for me, sends me out. My dad drops me off, and then I go to my school, and then I see my friends right over there. They're all scouring over their notes, making sure that they're good to go. They look at me, they wave at me, and then I go straight to them. And they go, how's it going, Ajit? Are you prepared? And I go, man, I'm ready. I'm going to crush my math exam. They go, dude. Today is science exam. It's not your math exam. <laughs> and that's how I wake up. 
It's, it's been 15 years since I actually took this exam and it still gives me nightmares. But thank God the reality was not that bad. I did study well, you know, I did, I did good, you know, but it's still a nightmare. But you can imagine, this was one of the most defining moments in my academic and professional career. One mistake, you're done. The trajectory of your life is different. In today's passage, we're going to encounter a defining moment in the progress of the gospel in the early church. As the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, not just Israel, now Syria and modern-day Turkey, the gospel is thriving. A huge conflict arises, a huge dissension arises, and the way the early church is going to address this conflict is going to determine the shape of Christianity. The stakes are high. The title of my sermon today is A Defining Dissension. And before we look at this passage, we're going to be looking at Acts 15. We're going, going to go over every verse that's there. I want to just give you a quick recap of what's happened thus far. The book of Acts is about the progress of the gospel, the gospel moving forward from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the gospel has now gone out from the Jews to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, Peter preaches to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then in Acts 11, the church in Antioch, a Gentile town in Syria, is thriving. Believers are added daily to the church, and this was where the disciples were first called Christians. And then in Acts 13, 14, we've, saw, we've kind of dealt with it the last two weeks. It's the first church-commissioned mission trip. So the church sends out Paul and Barnabas on their first mission trip, and they're going to Cy Cyprus. They're in Turkey preaching and seeing great reward. The Gentiles are coming in big number. And this is where the narrative picks up in Acts 15. I'd love for you to follow along with me in your Bibles, or you can see it up on your screen. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the story here in Acts 15 has three movements, and the first movement describes the problem. And what's the problem here? Here you have Gentiles already saved. They are in the family of God, and you have these people from Judea, Jews, who come up to them and say, well, you're not saved, 
if you're not circumcised and if you don't follow the law of Moses. The practice of circumcision was instituted by God in Genesis 17, and this was a sign of the covenant that God had between Abraham and him. So, this symbol was the mark of entrance into the Jewish community of faith and a lifetime of obedience to the law of Moses. And God had given this to them. God had communicated that to them. And now here you have these Jews saying, well, if you want to be a true Christian, you got to be circumcised even though you're not a Jew. So what was at stake here was the very nature of the gospel. Is salvation by grace? Or, does, or do Gentiles, and Gentiles are just non-Jews. Anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. Do they need to be circumcised? And they, do they need to keep the requirements of the law of Moses to be saved? And you see the reaction of Paul and Barnabas. They, they react very strongly, so they debate, they argue with them. And then it was so strong that they take the trek down to Jerusalem to meet with the leadership. And then the next verses outline the process by which the conflict is dealt with. So I'm going to be reading from verses 6 to 11, if you can follow along. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. just want to stop right here to, to underscore a point. Guys, this is talking about us. Unless you're a Jew, it's great. If you're not, imagine the implications of this, where when Peter says, he made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, and he has cleansed our hearts by faith. Now therefore, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Check out verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There's three speeches here in this process. And first up, Peter goes up. And, and the essence of the sermon is this. He says, you know what? You know, guys, this is what he says. God is the one who brought the gospel to the Gentiles. He baptized the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. And he says, there's no distinction between us and them anymore. Their hearts have been cleansed by faith. And he says, don't test God. Let's not test God. Because salvation happens only by grace. There's no requirement for these Jews, for these Gentiles, to be circumcised or to follow the law of Moses. 
And then it goes on in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, meaning they agreed. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So after Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they go up, they share what God has done in terms of signs and wonders, which are, which are an authentication of God's message, the gospel. And he says, well, they share probably what happened in their missionary trip that happened in Acts 13 and 14. It says, you know, even as we took the gospel out, there were many signs and wonders and finally, James stands up. Scholars agree that James is now the leader of the church. This is not the James and John, one of the disciples of Jesus, but this is the half-brother of Jesus, James, who also writes the book of James later in the New Testament. And this is what he says in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon Referring, referring to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to esteem from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here James makes the compelling argument with two defining statements from Scripture. First up, he says, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. The word people here is the Greek word laos. And this is the first time this word is used to refer to the Gentiles. You could look up all over the Old Testament. This word was used for the children of Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God. And the word that was normally used was ethne, which is nations or peoples. And here James is talking to a Jew Jewish audience. And for the first time ever, he uses this word to refer to to the Gentiles. And that's a big deal. Imagine the Jews to them was committed the oracles of God. They had access to God. They were God's own special people. And they were proud of that. And now James comes and says, well, God has called the people from himself among the Gentiles as well. And that was earth-shattering at that moment. And then secondly, he goes to Scripture. He quotes from the book of Amos to justify the inclusion of Gentiles in God's family, meaning Gentiles now share in the messianic blessings of Israel. 
And then James goes on, he suggests a solution. He says, you know, let's not trouble these Gentiles. I know we have our customs, but they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the law of Moses. And then he gives four concessions. He says, but let them abstain from things polluted by idols. Let them abstain from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. This almost like sounds counterintuitive. He just said there's no requirements needed, there's no restrictions, and then he gives like four requirements. And there's, there's two reasons that you can infer from this passage why James does this. One, these were activities that were, that were associated with pagan temples. So in Antioch, in those pagan temples, this was what was happening. Food, they were eating food sacrificed to idols. There was sexual immorality. You know, there was blood that was eaten. And James did not want the Gentile believers to be associated with anything that was pagan. And secondly, which is probably the more important one, was it was a matter of fellowship. Even though the decision had been made, or at this point the suggestion was made, whereby the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised, this was not a Gentile church or a Jewish church. This was one church. The Jews and the Gentiles needed to coexist together. And it was a matter of concession so that the Jewish and the Gentile believers could fellowship together. For the Jews, the law of Moses, even though they were Messianic Jews, if you were to call them that, the law of Moses was so integral to them it was so important for their religious observance, but at the same time, it was so intertwined with their culture. This was their culture. This is what they did, what they ate, how they behaved. Everything was dictated by the law of Moses. And they couldn't associate, according to Levit Leviticus 17, 18, the holiness code, they couldn't associate with people who did that. And James says, well, we are one church, and for us to coexist together, we need both of us to make sacrifices the Jews, well, we don't have to impose any requirements on them to be saved because salvation is by grace alone. And Gentiles, we need you to make these four concessions so we can fellowship together, eat at the same table, and worship God together. This was the process, and then we move on to the pronouncement, the decision it's in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Goes on. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, and with many others also. There's two implications in terms of the significance of this passage. What if the pronouncement was different? What if the Jews had decided, well, to be a Christian, you got to be circumcised. You got to follow the law of Moses. Well, for all you know, we might have had to do that today because the very nature, the very essence of the gospel would have been affected. Salvation would not have been by grace alone, but you needed to become a Jew in order, a Jewish proselyte in order to be saved. And this was also early days in the establishment of the church. Imagine if the Gentile Christians did not accept the pronouncement. They said, well, we don't want to become Jews. You would have had a church split just as soon as the church was founded. The Gentiles would have said, we probably would have, we're going to do our own thing. You can do your thing. We'll do our stuff. And we would have had two strands of Christianity right there. If I were to distill the essence of this conflict, the chapter in one statement, here's what it is. The resolution of the conflict in Acts 15 causes, to, causes the early church to reaffirm the grace-based nature of the gospel apart from a culturally Jewish identity, paving the way for a global, multicultural church. Let me read that for you so that it sinks in. Causes the church to reaffirm the grace-based nature of the gospel. We did not have to become Jews, Jewish proselytes. You can be yourself. You can be what the way God has created us to be, a Gentile, a non-Jew. Bring your own cultural identities. And that has resulted in the church today being a global, multicultural church. This is a big deal, guys. I look around here, you know, we always say 180 has about 19 languages spoken. There's so many different cultures. My favorite Sunday is Global Sunday. You, you might want to save the dates. It's going to be one of the last weeks of October. You want to be here. Out in the lobby, we have people cook their own ethnic food. There's food from India, Korea, Sweden, 
and all the other nations that are represented here. Man, we couldn't have had that if this didn't happen. We would have had to eat some good kosher Jewish food. <laughs> but the wise, this wise decision making was at a key moment. And now you could be a Gentile. You could be from any culture, but you can be saved. because of grace alone and what God's Jesus has done for us on the cross. We're going to look at a few implications really quickly before we leave. What does, that, what does this mean for us? This is done. What do we do about this passage? I have four quick implications for us. First up, protect the purity of the gospel from add-ons. The leaders are quick to get on here. As soon as Paul and Barnabas are brought, this problem is brought to them, they dispute, they run up to Jerusalem because they know the severity of this issue. The gospel is at stake. And we have an uncanny, I mean, we have an uncanny tendency to add stuff to the gospel. If that wasn't the case, there was no reformation that was needed in the, in the church. Martin Luther did not have to nail his 95 theses And also what we do is sometimes we tend to conflate our culture, what we do with the gospel. The gospel doesn't come in a vacuum. By culture, I mean the way we're entrenched to see life, the way we're conditioned to think, the way we grow up, our language, our family, our society, and we assume the way we do things is the right way to do things, right? So you take the gospel to someone else who's not like you and you want them to do things the way we want them to do as well. The Jews who advocated for, for the circumcision could not see any other way for Gentiles to be saved. But God comes through and he says, no. No add-ons. I'm a child of the modern missionary movement, as anyone. I was born in a hospital built by missionaries. My mom, she worked as a pediatrician there. I, I went to school that was built by missionaries. My college, undergraduate school, was built by missionaries as well. So I would never speak ill of them. But one of the criticisms of these missionaries was they conflated culture with the gospel. And one of the, one of the strangest things for me growing up was actually going to South Indian Christian weddings, right? So I know a lot of you would have heard about weddings in India. It's an all-week affair. You know, there's just so much fun. There's partying. And then you have the groom come in, elephant or even horses. There's so much fun. And then you go to these South Indian Christian weddings it's like a 50-minute affair. That's it. And then you go in, and then you hear the bridal march by Richard Wagner. I'm like, how did Richard Wagner get to southern India where, where like, we don't have any concept of Western music? And then you have a pronounced speaking of the vows, which is not there in Hinduism or even Islam, 
in our culture. And then once the ceremony is done, you have the wedding march by Felix Mendelssohn. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> and then we just have some food, and there's not even dancing. We don't dance. No! Because that's how the missionaries were then. Dancing was prohibited for them. So they passed us on. And now our weddings is this 15-minute affair, just like how it's probably in Britain right now. When we could have had a week of celebration and I could have ridden in an elephant, <laughs> right? <laughs> Protect the purity of the gospel from add-ons. Secondly, Keep God's spirit, word, and work central for fresh solutions to new problems. Again, in this passage, they encounter a problem that they've never encountered before, and then they don't stick to the past to maintain status quo. Peter appeals to the way God works. Paul and Barnabas, they show the signs and wonders authenticating the work of God. And James puts the spotlight on Scripture to inform that this movement to the Gentiles is scriptural. And we see the Holy Spirit orchestrating all of this. Verse 28, it says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. We have plenty of problems to tackle in our church today, even in our lives, our individual lives, and in the corporate church. And sometimes we have the tendency to dig in, to dig our heels, stick to what is comfortable, resist change, do things the way it's always been done. But here is a model of how we could do you keep the word of God front and center. You gather the community of believers. You discern what God is doing. And the Holy Spirit guides us to making the right decision. And that's something that we can all do, not just for church problems, but some of the issues that we have in our lives. How is God working what is God doing? How is God moving? What does he want us to do? Just being mindful of that even as we make decisions would hold us in good stead. Thirdly, be flexible with the non-essentials for the sake of relationships. This is an important one. Whether we realize it or not, the world is watching us. And here, if the Jews had decided, no, you got to become Jews to become Christians, no fellowship. If the Gentiles had decided, well, we love our food, we want to eat blood, they could not have had fellowship. The Jews had to sacrifice, the Gentiles had to sacrifice the world is watching us. And sometimes we as Christians, we tend to major on the minors, right? I was, I was attending a webinar this week. This was a webinar um, by Pushpay, which is our payment platform. And, um, and this webinar was about 
non-cash gifts, like what do we do with cryptocurrencies, what do we do with stocks and assets and bonds? So I was just curious to see how would that work, right? So I'm in this webinar, I'm just listening to this, this, you know, this guy presenting, he talks about cryptocurrencies, what is blockchain technology, things that fascinate me and I wanted to know a little bit more about. And then I'm like scouring over the, uh, the comments. And then there's this one guy who goes, cryptocurrency is the lie of the devil. He goes, this is how you guys cheat those in church. I don't want to associate with you or your organization anymore. Goodbye. And I go, man, is there a better way of handling this? Well, maybe, I, you know, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say cryptocurrency is a lie of the devil. Maybe it is. I'm not saying yes or no. But isn't, it doesn't necessitate a reaction, like the, a response that would restrict and constrain fellowship among those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, among those who have been saved by grace through faith alone, and we're one family, brothers and sisters, in Christ. Gospel unity is paramount, and sometimes that necessitates us to be flexible with the non-essentials. I heard this quote in one of my classes a long time ago, and it stuck with me. It's by a German reformer named Philip Melanchthon. He collaborated with Martin Luther, and this is what he said. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, clarity. Let me repeat that for you. In essentials, just the fundamentals of our faith, that Jesus is God, God is triune, you know, you can go to our website, you can see those fundamentals right there. There needs to be unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I can go on, on and on about the many implications that we can derive from this passage, the decision-making process, the leadership, but I, I want to end with this one, which I think is one of the most important implications for us today. I want us to celebrate the global, multicultural nature of the church. As I was reading this passage, as I was reading Peter's sermon, I was cheering up, and this doesn't happen to me often. Like, man, these guys are talking about me. I am a Gentile, and it says that there's no distinction between the Jews and Gentiles. I have the same access to God. I can go to God anytime I want to. I don't have any restrictions, any requirements imposed on me. I've been saved by grace, and it is the work of God. I don't have to do anything. This is the nature of the church. A couple of weeks ago, God convicted me of something. One of, the, one of the favorite things that I love to do with my daughter, who's two and a half years old, is we love to go grocery shopping. So it's just me and her, right? So we go, I put her on the cart every time. We're in Jewel Osco. She helps me pick stuff up from the aisles. You know, we're having a great time. And then invariably when we go to the checkout line, there's a bunch of people. My daughter is very friendly, so she's talking to people. 
When we go to the checkout line, there's a bunch of people right there. She just breaks out into song. She goes, yes, Jesus loves me. And like everyone's, everyone's like looking at her and I'm like embarrassed. And I'm like, hey, can you whisper? I'm trying to like get her to stop and she won't. She goes through her entire song. I was thinking, why am I embarrassed? Why, is it because she's being a nuisance? She's, you know, disturbing others? Or is it because I'm ashamed that we're actually singing about Jesus and I don't want to be identified as that evangelical Christian who's obnoxious, who doesn't respect people's boundaries. We don't have to be ashamed of our faith. Now let me tell you why. We, we are drawn and swayed by the cultural narratives of our time. And one of the big ones is that, you know, because of the last 300 years of history, is that Christianity is often associated with colonialism and imperialism, right? So even in India, when I've had, you know, when I've gone evangelizing, they don't want to become a Christian. Oh, because why? It's the white man's religion. We don't want that. But nothing could be further from the truth. Rebecca McLaughlin, she's an apologist. She tackles this notion in her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. It was the Christianity Today Book of the Year. So if you want to do anything related to apologetics, I recommend that book. And she says that the claim that Christianity is a Western religion is indefensible. And she talks about the diversity in the New Testament. In Acts 2, the gospel was preached to people from modern-day Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, Italy. And then she tracks Christianity in Africa. It took root in Egypt in the first century. And by the second century, the gospel had spread to Tunisia, to Sudan, and parts of Africa. Iraq is home to the oldest continuous Christian community. And then you have the Iranian church now, which is the fastest growing church. And then you have the Indian church where there's unverified reports that Apostle Thomas brought the gospel there. In fact, there's, there's this, there's a, it's actually in my city, there's, there's a mountain that's called Thomas Mount. And it's believed that Thomas was actually like martyred right there. So there's a Catholic church, there's a shrine, there's, apparently you can see the body of Thomas in a, you know, you can't see the body, but it's in a, it's, it's displayed there. We don't know how true, how much, how true is that? But there's verified reports that Christianity was thriving among well-established communities in India in the third and fourth centuries. So this notion that this is a Western religion is not true because you have all of these communities that were already Christian even before we had these amazing Western missionaries come to different parts of the world spreading the gospel. So she, send, she, she ends her book by saying, our habit of equating Christianity with Western culture is itself an act of Western bias. And she goes, if you care about diversity, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. Come on, guys, we gotta give it up for that. We don't have anything to be ashamed of what we believe in because of the global multicultural nature of the church.
Acts 15 is crucial to that. The essence of the gospel was at stake. God came through, through the wise leadership of these elders in Jerusalem. And because of that, we're now a global, multicultural movement. Let's celebrate that. Can we just bow down for a quick word of prayer? God, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you that we as Gentiles have access to you without any requirements. And we are saved by grace alone, God. We are thankful for that. God, we just ask you to help us to live out this truth. Help us to celebrate just how amazing your work is in bringing together people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue to worship you, God. And God, may you unite us. May you help us to put the gospel front and center. Help us not to have add-ons to the gospel, but help us to preach the undiluted gospel that has the power by your spirit to transform our city, God. Thank you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to stay here. I love this kid. Crazy guy. No, no greeters have to go. We're going to do communion together here, but I want to... I want to be really clear with something here. What Ajit just preached is one of the most important messages for 180 Chicago. I've been blown away at our diversity and our unity. And I'll tell you what brings us together. We meet at the foot of the cross. I had a man tell me one time, listen close, guys. I had a man tell me one time, do you trust me, Carl? It was a weird season in our life, and I just met the guy, and I said, heck no, I don't trust you. I don't know you. And he said, that's fair. He said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to be at the foot of the cross going through something here. And if you meet me at the foot of the cross, I'll be there with you. I said, that, friend, I can do. You know what the early church did and what you're doing, 180 Chicago? You have never let the pettiness of my way get in the way of our way in Christ. And it is beautiful. Honestly, I've had pastors ask me, with all the cultural stuff that's going on what do you attribute that there's not infighting and bickering and division going on at 180 and I'm going to tell you this we're rallied around the gospel aren't we brother we're rallied around the gospel and it is unifying man you know the early church did something interesting they started fighting by the time Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, he said, when you come together for communion, <laughs> some of you are getting drunk. <laughs> some of you are eating and drubbing out before others could even get any food. 
I don't know what the Puerto Ricans were up to, Jose, but... <laughs> but they were eating good, that's for sure. <laughs> but here's, here's what Paul said. When we come together to have communion in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate by humbly coming together and recognizing what we have in common. And that's what we're going to do right now. Paul went on to say in this story, and it's a great one, in fact, if you don't have a communion cup in your hand, just slip up your hand, and one of our, one of our ambassadors will get it into your hand. Ambassadors, get these out to folks, could you? Great, just keep your hand up. We're gonna take this together here. But what Paul said, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, listen, we're gonna, we're gonna take time to remember what unifies us. What they remembered was the broken body and the blood of Jesus. All right, we're getting communion cups handed out. If you still need one, get them up in your hand, hand in the air. Ajit needs one. Somebody shuttle one up to my buddy Ajit. Here we go. So I want us to do this. I want us to take that little cellophane off the top. Just that little cellophane off the top and grab that little wafer. I want us to do this together. I want you to look left and look right. Look at people around you. Look in front of you. Look behind you. Look, we're from all over the world, man. But we're one in Christ. I want us to hold this wafer up right here. Hold it up before the Lord. And I want to pray. And I want to say, Father, thank you for sending your son who died for us in his prayer was let them be one. We are one because of Jesus. Amen. We give you thanks. Take and eat together. Take and eat. Paul went on writing to the church of Corinth it was a letter you don't have to follow the exact words but it's good to go remember, uh, remembering the body that was broken and then the blood that was spilled and see just peel that back and let's hold this up before the Lord and just say Father thank you Jesus thank you that not only was your blood spilled for us through the scrim of the shed blood of Jesus, our Father now sees us. And the Holy Spirit empowers us. Thank you. We do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take it. I want you to pray your message in a short prayer over us. Listen to the Spirit of God. Pray it over us, and then we're going to sing a song together. God, we just want to thank you. Thank you for this unity that we have because of what you have done right here, God. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to obey the law of Moses because we've been saved by faith. And thank you that this has resulted in the explosion of the church. Yeah. And now, 
people from every nation, tribe, and tongue can worship you in freedom. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand to our feet. Lead us in a little bit of this, Corey. What can wash in Gentiles from every nation, tribe, and tongue. May he make us one in uncommon ways, glorifying his name throughout all the earth. And may we be people so filled by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can help those in pain May we share in the blessing of the gospel. May that God go with you today. Let it be. If you're new with us here today, when you go out into the lobby, get a gift from us. We want to get that into your hand. And I want to spike this. Listen closely. A rise is happening. God is on the move. I want you to get on the wave with what God is doing. Use that little flyer. We've got about 20, maybe not even that, about 15 slots available up at Bob and Bev's to fill their home to overflowing. And it's going to be great. You know people downtown? Get that QR code scanned. Invite them. We'll watch God do amazing things. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Nothing but the